Hello again listeners and welcome to another edition of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast as always is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. I'm your host Freddie Cocker and I'm the founder and editor of chief of Vent. As you may know by now, each pod I check in with a special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they're passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. Now, at the time of recording, this is going to be the last podcast we do for 2019. So I just want to offer my personal thanks to everyone who's tuned in, all the guests who've come on and opened up about their mental health, and hopefully we'll have some really exciting guests for you in 2020 as well. On to our special guest now, and I'm so excited to have the last podcast of 2019 be with this guest and talking to this guy as he's someone I've known pretty much since childhood, um, and I'm hoping this pod will be as educational for me as it will be for all of you listeners. So he is the man, the myth, the legend that is Mr. Shane Terrier. Shane is a lead key worker for high-risk young people, working with them on a daily basis to change their lives and make sure they don't take the wrong path in life. Shane, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. How are you? I'm great, for you. That was, that was an amazing intro. That, that <laughs> Mate, I always like to make my intros for my guests amazing. Yeah, man, I really appreciate that. And I'm happy to be here. You know, thanks for bringing me on for, mm. you know, your last part of the year. Mm. No, it's nice. It's going to be a nice catch-up. I'm looking mm. forward to it. Thanks, man. And now for the listeners who, who don't live in our area, um, we've known each other for just about over 11 years, haven't we? And... God, it seems like time's flown by 11, since then, hasn't it? 11 years, you know what? It's 11 years, but we got after... After what was it, secondary school? Mm. We kind of got disconnected for mm. a while. The university like, life, and yeah, everyone, that happens to everyone, everyone doesn't it? And you know, meeting you again was just so by chance because we met like in the gym. Yeah, we did, yeah, we yeah, did in our local was, gym, yeah. Yeah, which was so surprising. And then you invited me to your. My first, the second Just Checking the In Live. Just Checking In Live. And I came and that was. Right, that was amazing. Because you got a chance, I guess, to reconnect with those other people you hadn't yeah, seen yeah, for exactly. ages as well. Yeah, yeah. People I hadn't seen in one instance. Some people I hadn't seen for almost like 10 years. So, mm. yeah, it was amazing seeing mm. everybody again. And, you know, now I'm here. Mm. And I got really good feedback as well from that night saying, oh, Shane came along. Like, we haven't seen him in time. Like, it was so good to chat to him. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, You're such a larger-than-life personality. And I think it was really good for sort of everyone to sort of like see how well you're getting on and, and just see yeah. you really. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a great experience. I, mean, mm. I really enjoyed it. Um, right, so now we've got that out of the way, shall we get started? Let's get straight into it, Shane, and start off by talking about your own journey. Now, um, just tell the listeners about your early childhood, adolescence and, and the shame we meet during those years. Okay, so my early life started in Leytonstone in East London. Big up Leytonstone, my child, my, <laughs> my hometown as well. Yeah, lovely place. Um, when I was three, um, I went to live with my grandparents in Zimbabwe. Mm. Um, I was there for about five years. And you remember that really vividly, sort of, so even though you were three? Mm. Yeah, mm. Great time. Like, I was there with my brother as well, my grandparents. Had a lot of cousins over there, so, you know... I have a lot of really enjoyable memories from that kind of time. Mm. Um, I came back when I was eight. Uh, I came back when I was eight. I was in Leytonstone for a while again. Mm. And then I moved to South Woodford, like, just before secondary school. Mm. Um, then secondary school, I came to Armstead. Um, that's how I met... That's how I met Matt. 
Um, Big up Matt Hill, for, yeah, Mr. Producer, sadly, sadly not long able to produce us, <laughs> but gave, gave, gave the podcast a great start. Yeah, I know, and then through meeting Matt, um, obviously I met you mm. and, you know, the rest of the people that we know as well, so, mm. yeah. And, and who, how, what would you, how would you sort of describe yourself when you're growing up during those years and, and what were you, how were you navigating that, that sort of tumultuous time of your life? Describe myself, well, you know, I've always been quite like a positive person. Mm. Um, growing up, I was, I always enjoyed just having fun, just being a kid, enjoying mm. my childhood. Mm. Um, so when I came, so when I came back as well, it wasn't that difficult for me to meet new people mm. and make friends and all that type of stuff. Mm. Um, so, you know, I enjoyed um, like quite a mm. lot. So you're blessed really. Yeah. 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 yeah I, was, I was quite lucky to have, you know, a pretty good upbringing as well, you know, um, and my parents, my parents raised me really well as well. Mm. Um, so growing up and being older now, I really appreciate that for that. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and just on that point, you know, you, you had a, when, even when I first started knowing you, when we were in, um, the local area together, you had a pretty unique skill set of being able to sort of make friends with different people from from different racial and ethnic backgrounds, not just in your year group, but yeah. sort of widely as more widely as well, without compromising who you were and your authenticity as a person, which I was I really admired. Yeah. Um, was this something you felt you were naturally able to do, or just something, you, or you something you actually you know tried quite hard to work on? Um, when I was younger, I don't feel like I. I needed to work on it because when I was back home, back home being Zimbabwe, mm. um, there's quite there's quite a big like community feel and everybody just gets along. Mm. Like the whole culture is is just knowing who your neighbours are mm. and being friends with everybody. So my early childhood over there, um, I was really um, I was really quite social. Mm. So when I came back here. Um, it didn't feel that difficult to continue just mm. being social and meeting people. Mm. Um, and I've always been quite an open person. So mm. even coming into secondary school where I'm around a lot more people because my primary school was really small, mm. um, it it didn't seem that difficult to It was natural. To yeah, yeah, it felt really natural being mm. able to move through different groups and, mm. you know, and have a great time doing mm. so. We'll discuss your work in more detail in a second, but do you think this skill and your exposure to people from a whole sway of different backgrounds and your ability to coexist with all of them as well at the same time actually helped in your professional career? And, and if so, how? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Because, you know, I became friends with a lot of people from so many different backgrounds um, and... Also, being in uni, I met a lot of people from so many different backgrounds that mm. when it came into my work, um, I was able to empathise a lot more mm. with the young people that I worked with. Um, and I had quite a good understanding of where they came from. Mm. So I didn't have as many issues, um, you know, mm. getting along with them and you know, just helping them to become mm. better people. You didn't have as many sort of... Uh, uh, some subconscious biases, I should say, maybe, than perhaps someone else would have if they're experiencing these people for no. the first time. Mm. No. We'll get to university now. And if I'm right in saying you went to Aston University first yeah. and then you transferred to Coventry Uni, is that yeah. correct? So just talk to me about the shame we meet here and, and if you could just tell me about your experiences at Aston and then Coventry. As, I'm sure that can't have been easy to transfer universities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, being in Aston, you know, obviously going to uni for the first time, that was... That was quite a freeing experience, mm. you know, you're 
I remember, I remember the anticipation of going to uni. Mm, kind of like being all end all in our yeah, sort of circles, exactly. wasn't it? Yeah. And then, and then you finally get there, you know, your parents are helping you pack your stuff. And then I'll never forget my first, my first day where we were done packing and my parents just got in the car and they left. And I was just standing yeah. there. I was like, yo, like, I'm just, I'm by myself. <laughs> yeah. I'm in this whole new city. Mm. Um, and what happened with me was that I went. You say Aston's in Birmingham as well. Aston's in yeah, Birmingham, yeah. right? Like right in the centre of Birmingham. Mm. So, um, what kind of made things a bit more difficult for me when I first started was that on the day that I moved in, um, no one was there. Like mm. no one was, no one was on my floor. Um, so I didn't really know what to do. I sat around for a while, and. Then I started, I was like, you know, let me just leave and go out of here, mm. go into Birmingham, walk around, get Sort to, of climatise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just get myself, like, used to to the area. Mm. Um, and then I saw that Birmingham New Street was really close. Mm. So I'm like, oh, okay, what else is around here? Mm. I see Coventry. So I hop on a train, go Coventry. So you just hopped on a the train there and then on your train, own? On wow. Train, went Coventry, um, walked around... You know, I found some accommodations. I kind of had a rough idea of people who were going to Coventry, like people that I knew that were going to Coventry, mm. but I had no idea where they actually were. Mm. And, you know, I weren't really in contact that much, but walked around, walked around, found an accommodation, walked in, and, you know, as I walked into one of the buildings, some guy comes flying down the <laughs> Like, you know, you know in cartoons when people, like, slide down the yeah, ground? Yeah, 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 yeah. He came sliding down, like, almost hit me. And that guy became one of my best friends, mm. even up to now. And I met a whole lot of great people, mm. you know, in that time. So my first year was actually split a lot between being mm. in Aston and being in Coventry. Um, and then my degree, my degree in Aston... Um, I just didn't enjoy it. But mm. And what was the degree? I was doing a chemical engineering okay. foundation year mm. um, to obviously progress to do chemical engineering. Mm. But by the time I got to the end of the year, I was like, no, nah, like, I just, I can't do this. Like, mm. It's not really for me. Mm. Um, and I had to do a lot of maths. I can't stand maths. <laughs> I, really, I can't stand maths either. I can't yeah. stand it. So I spoke with my advisor or my lecturer and... Um, he was like, oh, I actually used to work in Coventry and they have this great course that they do um, that was analytical chemistry and forensics. Mm. And I think you'd really enjoy it. Mm. So he put me... He put it's me quite big of him to say that as well. Yeah, or yeah, her. yeah. Was it, was it, it was a man? Him, yeah, yeah. yeah um, I really, you know, I really made the most of it and he put me, he put me in contact with Coventry and then the next year I started in Coventry. Wow, and what was that like? Because I'm sure it must have been a sense of, okay... Maybe I'm now finally where I want to be, but also you're almost having to start again in a in a sense. In a in a way, in a way, but you know, I felt a lot more at peace. Um, I understood a lot more of what I was studying, mm. and obviously because I had spent a lot of my time there already the previous year, I had a lot of friends who were there, so it just felt a lot easier for me. Mm. Did it just click? Process. Yeah, it just clicked, mm. and you know, I enjoyed it. Mm. And you also took up rugby. Uh, and I never knew you someone who enjoyed rugby, never knew someone who someone had any interest in it. Um, and you went straight into the first team, yeah. which is not, you know, the no, no, the easiest I, thing I to do. I didn't, go, I didn't go straight. Oh, okay. In. I didn't go straight in. I was second team for a while, and then I mm. got into first. But 
growing, growing up, I've always been a bigger guy. Everyone has always known me to be a bigger guy. So when we play football, like, it never really worked for me because I'm always hurting people. <laughs> uh, I slide tackle somebody and now it's a problem. And, you know, it's, that's, it just In school, it's, yeah, that would have been a big, it, yeah. It just weren't as fun. And then, you know, I just end up being goalkeeper all the time. I'm not trying to be a goalkeeper. <laughs> so I was like, you know what, what, what sports can I really do? And um, it was the sports fair, and I saw I saw them advertising rugby. I knew nothing about rugby. Mm. I didn't even know that there were two separate kinds of rugby. <laughs> what, rugby union, rugby league, yeah, yeah. rugby union, rugby league. Um, so actually, I ended up in rugby league, uh, which apparently is the more down upon kind of rugby. I didn't really bother me. Yeah, rugby league is more like northern focus. The north of England love playing it, oh, but okay. it, and it's there's a bit of a sort of class divide when it comes to both. Like really? rugby union is largely played more by middle class kids. Um, it's sort of played in a lot of private schools, whereas rugby league up north is traditionally seen as more of a working class. Get like you know, there's that's why the sort of north and south divide exists as well. I'm, yeah, I'm, I honestly, I knew nothing. But that's great that you didn't know anything about, about it because you had no biases coming that. in. Yeah, you know, even even playing the game, even to this day, I don't feel like I really understood it. Like <laughs> no one really like, does. My coach, my coach just said. Get the, give the ball to Shane and Shane you run through people that's that's literally all I had to do <laughs> your Facebook profile picture for about three years was just you with like three guys hanging yeah, off yeah, it yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it was it was oh it was so much fun it was so much um, fun what, just tell me what I mean you've obviously said it a bit there about why you decided to give it a go but what were your sort of motivations like did you did you want to get have like a hobby that on the side when you were studying or did you want to use it to meet new people or just as a way of sort of getting keeping yourself active no none, none of that I just felt like it I, I just felt you like just it, felt it. Like I saw it. I saw the guy advertise it and it looked like fun so mm. I went and did it and, and that was it and I just got stuck in for mm. a few years and what new skills or experiences did, did playing rugby at uni give you and, and how did you take that forward into later life kind of experiences I mean a team environment I'm pretty sure you might not have been yeah, in before yeah yeah being in a team for the first time um, that was really interesting you mm. know always having to think about like, did you have a nickname teammates because no. every rugby team gives a nickname to everyone did you not have it was it just Shane oh no no Iron Stomach Iron Stomach is that what they called you yeah, IS yeah because yeah, yeah. <laughs> I never I never got ill I could literally I could have anything I'll be good yeah, so. <laughs> I love that. So I had that. I had that for a while. Um, was it a shock to you the sort of big drinking culture? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Because they, they love a beer, don't they? Like, <laughs> <laughs> that is not my thing. So I didn't really. I didn't enjoy that aspect of it. But I mean, you enjoy drinking. I know that, but maybe not yeah. to the extent. Well, to that kind of extent. Yeah. yeah. That was that was a bit much for me. What was your initiation like? Was it quite a shock as well? Initiation, yeah, it was a shock. Um, I don't really speak on it. Okay, was it quite, unspeakable things you had to do? Okay, well, there were un, there were unspeakable things that happened. Okay, but what I were the things know, that you can say on this podcast that were maybe funny that you had to do? Oh, funny, uh, like eating a dog biscuit or something. I don't know. No, one of them was eating like a like a really hot chili or something, right. like, like an insanely hot one. I would have died. Um, something like <laughs> that. I, I had to eat them for my whole team. Cause right. It's eating for your whole team? Yeah, it was like for like, no, because we were split into teams. Oh, okay. Teams oh, like sorry. Fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And no one in my group could do it. So, so like, you ate five hot chilies? Like, yeah, why not? Oh my, that's, that's how you got, I can see why you got iron stomach. Jesus so, Christ. So yeah, stuff like, stuff like that. And mm. then, you know, it kind of progressed through mm. the night. Mm. Um, 
And yeah, yeah, it was... Yeah, it was a lot. Sounds like a crazy time. It, yeah. was, it was fun. Yeah, because um, as we were speaking off air about the pod ages ago, we, we were saying how, you know, you're picking up a rugby ball for the first time, but when you got into the first team, you were playing teams like Loughborough, who basically all the England teams train at their university, and you have yeah. to be like an England under-19s player to get into their first team. What was that like? Uh, that was a terrible experience. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> like, like, we were good. We were a really good team, but Loughborough crushed us. Oh, mm. my goodness. Like, when I when I stepped onto the pitch, I remember I must have been, what was I, like, nine, 20, mm. 21 mm. at the time. And, you know, I felt like I was a big guy. But then some of the guys that I was seeing on their team, they they looked at least 35. You know, <laughs> I, like, and they, they, probably were. Were. they were like twice my size I'm like this is ridiculous <laughs> and I remember, I'll never forget one guy it's one guy I saw who was I thought he was completely bald right? right but then he turned around and he had like a circle just a circle patch of hair right. that he had cut into his hair like that so like I'm a like, target this guy is literally crazy yeah <laughs> like everyone seemed crazy and then um, playing the match everyone most of our team got injured one guy had broken ribs. Jesus Christ. Um, me, I remember getting, like, because I used to play with contacts, right? I remember getting hit so hard that I thought my contacts had fallen out mm. until I got hit another time and my contacts was actually, I realised they had rolled up into my head. <laughs> oh, my God. And when I got hit the second time, they rolled back down. And was, <laughs> Jeez, like, this is... Like, I can see me. again. <laughs> oh, man, this, that was not fun. That was wow. Wow. We get to the end of university now, Shane, and you're sort of making your way into the adult world. Who's the Shane we meet here? And, and just tell me about those first few years of, of finding your feet again before you get to where you are now. And also, what was graduation gradu- graduating like, especially having gone from one uni to the other? Uh, graduating, um, graduating was great. Mm. You know, um, getting to see your family happy, your parents happy. Mm. You know, you're there with all of your friends that you worked so hard with throughout mm. the years. That's a really great feeling, so... Yeah, yeah, I, I love that time. Mm. Yeah. And then how did you sort of navigate... I mean, I'm sure for everyone, especially me, and I'm, I'm sure many other, many other people listen to the pod, that um, those first six months to a year can be a really tumultuous time for anyone post-university if they haven't got something sorted out, if they didn't have a placement year or something like that to fall into. What were those first sort of six months post-uni like? Oh, no, those are fine. Those are fine. Those are fine, okay. The thing, is, the thing is, with the job that I do, I've been doing it since the first year of when I started Coventry. Mm. So, so you had that to fall back yeah, into so then? Yeah, so okay. I was always working throughout uni. As soon as mm. I finished uni, I was still working. Mm. Um, it was more a case of trying to find something that fit my degree. Mm. But with me, with my first degree, by the time I got to the end of it, I was like, no, this isn't for me mm. either. You know, the part the part of my degree that I really enjoyed was more the forensic side than mm. the chemistry side. But at the same time, I felt like, you know, I just didn't want to deal with, like, dead bodies and mm. and investigations and mm. all that type of... Like, mm. and that was the part that really interested me. Mm. Like, like, going, like, putting on the whole hazmat suit and going to sites and mm. analysing a crime scene. Mm. You know, in in theory, it's... Like it's so exciting, it's glamorous, isn't it? With the with the TV shows, yeah. But when now. you're when you're actually doing it and you're actually faced with a real murder mm. scene and mm. having to see um, bodies and stuff mm. like that, it just I just turned you off. Yeah, it just yeah. turned me off. And even mm. we had, um, I remember we had like a constable come in um, to speak with us, 
And she was like, her, her first day on the job, she had to examine 10 dead bodies. I was like, no, this is, I don't want to do that. Like, you know, um, mentally, I don't feel like that was something that I could, mm, I could have would have been. Or, I mean, and I think it's good that you recognise that and you yeah. made that change. Um, I think that question brings us nicely onto your role now, which is something you were doing, as you said, um, since your days at Coventry, which is as a lead key worker with with high-risk young people. Now, first of all, for the listeners who don't know what lead key worker means, just define it for them and then tell us about what your role entails on a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, so as, as a key worker, I work with uh, young people, typically 16 to 18-year-olds mm. um, who are in care. Mm. Um, I specialise in working with high-risk young people, mm. so um, young people that are a lot more vulnerable, that have... Um, come from you know maybe like a history of abuse or a mm. history of violence mm. or you know young offenders mm. um all those types of people is is what I've always kind of worked with mm. you know and when I initially started um my um one of my friends mum had a had a company and that worked with young people like that mm. um and she gave me the opportunity because she felt like I could be really good with people mm. Um and I and without even realizing, um, she, what she what she did was that you know she told me that I want to put you in like the toughest placement that we have sort of sink or swim sort of thing basically mm. yeah so that um if you go into that you can do anything yeah you yeah can, you can do yeah. anything later on so it was a massive struggle at the start because you know you're working with people that you know will tell you that they don't they don't want you to be around them mm. you know they don't want to engage and mm. you know it's kind of it was for me it was like I had to develop my communication skills mm. and you know be able to reason with them and understand you know have a better understanding of where they are coming from and why mm. they may feel like they wouldn't want to work with me mm. um, and over years of developing that um, I was able to get to the point where I am now to literally work with any kind mm. of young person. Mm. And you mentioned your friend's mum there at, at, as the person who sort of introduced you to this world. Yeah, yeah. Um, what message would you give her if she was listening to this pod and, and what impact did she, have on, did she have on you now you're looking back at it? Oh, no, she was amazing. Shout out to her. Like, <laughs> she really, she gave me a great opportunity um, to go into something that I never expected myself to go into. Mm. Especially back then when I felt like it was only going to be a short-term kind of role. Mm. Um, to be doing it now, it's, I've been doing it uh, six years. Mm. I'm going into my seventh year of doing this. Um, it's been it's been a really amazing experience mm. for me. And when you start when you started it, what were your sort of inspiration or what inspired you, should I say, to to work with young people? Do you think or or do you feel like very much it was sort of you had dropped into it and it was a sink or swim, and then you basically just loved it. Um, I feel like just just me being just the character that I kind of have and being able to be good with people. Mm. Um, I felt like even though I didn't expect to go into it, me being in that environment um, wasn't it. It did it wasn't as big of a challenge. Like mm. it just took some adjusting. Mm. But um, once I once I settled into the role, mm. I was able to apply you know, all of my experiences and skills to work with these mm. people. So it yeah. a lot easier. 
And, and as you stated before, which was going to be my next question, sort of the young people you're, you're working with are high risk, which means that they are coming from a place of perhaps abuse, violence, um, broken homes maybe, yeah. um, behavioural issues. Was there also perhaps, were you also exposed to perhaps the, your first, I don't know, reality of mental health issues as well? Because I'm sure a lot of these kids probably had mental health issues as well. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I've worked with a lot of young people that suffer from mental health issues um, such as uh, depression, anxiety, um, bipolar is another big mm, one as well. Mm, it's not spoken about enough, I don't feel. Yeah, mm. bipolar. Um, sort of borderline personality disorder, schizophrenia, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I literally, I worked with um, I worked with young one young person who he could literally he could be so great and he was so polite throughout the day mm. and then he could just take like a nap or something and mm. he wakes up and his mood is completely different mm. and you know he wants to tear down the whole place mm. um, and just being able to deal with mm. all of that and how did you manage that how did you did you have to modify your approach in based on what mood he was in and what how did you manage your communication um, skills when it came to that over over the years um working working a role like that you kind of develop your skills for being able to read people mm. um because that becomes really important mm. so with him um there were always some key indicators where you know I could tell that if if I keep pushing this mm. or if um, things go in a certain way, this is the reaction he's going to have. Mm. So um, you always have to like, I always had to like read his face and mm. read his body language mm. to see which direction he was going to. And if he was going in a more negative kind of way, um, then I would always try to steer him to a more positive kind of side of things. Mm. And what perhaps risks are there, would you say, in working with young people in regards to both your own safety um, and your own mental health as well. And how to, how do you ma- manage those realities? You know, have you ever felt in danger by a young person? Obviously, you're quite a big guy, so I'm not sure there's yeah. many people who are who are stepping to you. But have you ever had to intervene if they have put themselves or perhaps others in imminent danger? Yeah, yeah, I've been I've been in some some pretty insane situations because mm. uh, the type of the type of work I do, um, I work in semi independent placement so mm. a lot of the time what does that mean it's one-to-one so mm. um it's literally the last kind of stage of care for a young person mm. where um they can't be in a shared house because mm. they wouldn't work well without the young people mm. but they, they're still in care mm. so they're put in a placement where it's just them and like maybe one other staff member mm. or maybe two staff members um depending on their level of risk and with with that um, it can be quite dangerous at times, especially mm. if they get angry or, mm. you know, I've had instances, I've had instances where, you know, a young person has tried to attack me, mm. tried to stab me or something like that. Mm. Um, God, that's, that must have been so hard for you. I mean, I can't even imagine what that must have been uh, like. I'm a big guy, like, you're not, not stabbing <laughs> me, like, it's not, I weren't, I weren't worried about any of that. Um, it's just, I, I worried more for kind of other staff who couldn't mm. who couldn't understand, you know, mm. why a young person was feeling that way. Because sometimes mm. it could just be based off of they they they've never been able to kind of vocalize the kind of feelings they're having. And a lot of these young people they've been through a lot. Mm. Um they've been through a lot and they've never really been able to talk about 
they've been able to vent what's going, never, going on. They've been able to vent. You yeah. know, they've never had anybody to, to speak it to. And that ends up manifesting itself into just anger. Because mm. um, that's just like the easiest kind of way to get things mm. out. Um, it's frustration that they've had to they've had to go through this basically exactly yeah. so um, with with the young people that I work with um, when something like that happens obviously when it escalates to that kind of level all you can really do is, is call the police mm. and, you know um, follow the appropriate process I guess yeah yeah, yeah and just um, oh, what's the word um, just protect yourself I mm. guess as best as you mm. can um, but in in the times where they were most calm. That's when I'll, you know, try my best to speak to them and just mm. encourage them that, you know, there's other ways that you can deal with things. Mm. And, you know, if you ever want to speak about something, you know, we can we can talk. Mm. And, yeah, that's how I got through to most young people, I guess. Mm. Yeah. And, and with your own mental health, obviously you've been exposed to some, I imagine, pretty horrible stories and experiences and incidents like you say when people have tried to attack you how do you how do you a manage that and make sure that you're not scarred yourself by them and also how can you kind of switch off when the job's done so to speak because i'm sure you know their lives don't stop when you finish work basically yeah uh one thing that i've noticed after doing this so long is that it's very desensitizing Mm, must be um because Every every day you're working, you're dealing with young people that have you know been through so much, and you have to read so many. You have to read their files of everything that they've been through, mm. um, and obviously when they're in a worse off kind of mood and they want to put you through it as well, that can be quite mentally challenging. Mm. Um, and with some with some young people, I've had to pull away from from them because it gets to a point where. Um, it's just not beneficial for either of us to mm. be around each other anymore mm. because, um, you know, they just might not want to mm. engage. And, mm. and you, you kind of have to know when to, mm. to leave things and mm. work with another young person or recommend somebody else that could be better suited to mm. working with that young person. Mm. Uh, yeah. Um, just from this pod so far, Shane, it's been really opening for me because I don't, I didn't, I hadn't ever really asked you about your job before yeah, this, yeah. before this pod, and I think it's pretty evident. I think to all the listeners right now that you are changing lives in the work that you do, without breaching confidentiality rules. What what examples could you give of some of the most inspiring young people that you've worked with, and maybe the best stories about how you've helped them transform their lives better, and also what they've taught you about yourself, maybe as well. Best stories. Um... Someone maybe came at you within a really dark place and then ended up kind of going on to achieve maybe greatness maybe or something like that. They've all they've all been in in really dark places. I, mm. I couldn't really compare any of them. Mm. For me, it's more just them being able to get to eighteen mm. and be able to to live by themselves mm. and function in society. Like that's my that's my that's main your goal. goal. Yeah. Like, um, if you if you leave out of here and you're able to take care of yourself and you know you're you're able to kind of leave that kind of life that you had before behind, mm. um, that that means that means everything really. Mm. Um, that's kind of why I do 
So what wisdom do you think you've tried to impart from your own experiences, as well as in your professional sort of capacity on the young people you've worked with? And also, have there been any experiences that you've had with a particular young person where they've actually taught you a little bit about yourself or helped you grow? Um, I wouldn't say... I wouldn't say I say I say the wisdom that I would impart on them would more come from just being being an example for them that there's there's a different way that you can do things. Mm. And that not every not every situation has to, you know Define your life maybe or result in something violent or or, you know, revolt might result in being abusive or whatever. Mm. You know, there's so many other ways that you can do things and there's so many other ways for you to become successful because mm. a lot of young people don't really consider everything that, you know, they can do with themselves or, you know, the... What's it like? The, the alternatives, maybe. The alternatives yeah. and the things that they actually have access to. Mm. And a lot of young people are never really told that, you know, you can you can be great, like you can, you can really do mm. things with yourself. Mm. Um, so, with young one young person I worked with, um, he he was always great at like designing things. He never really liked going to school or college or anything like that. Um, and I never really believed in pushing him to go because, for me, being in university, I wish someone had told me that you know you don't really have to do you don't really have to do this degree to to get far in life. Like, yeah, it's not the be all end yeah, so many. It's a tool, but do. to some things, but it's a tool. Exactly. It's not a tool for others. And for him, he was a lot better at just being creative. So I encouraged him to just be creative. You know, if, you know, I would like for you to do college, but if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But really focus on what you're great at. And, mm. You know, he turned that into, um, he turned that into a really good t-shirt business for himself. Mm. Um, and he plans on turning it into kind of a bigger fashion brand. And mm. he's so young, I think he's only like 17. Well, this, I mean, 19. I just saw a BBC News article saying that there's now like 3,000 odd or thousands more teenagers who have their own businesses than there were like 10 yeah, years exactly. ago. And, you know, with social media being the way it is, it's a lot easier to promote yourself mm. and, and really build a brand and build a business out of yourself. So mm. that's one thing I really encourage with anybody that I work with. Mm. We'll, we'll touch on your identity as a person sort of later on in the pod chain, but in relation to your work, you know, as, as, a, as a black man, are you conscious of trying to be a role model or a mentor to some of the young black people that you work with? Um, and how does that manifest itself? Uh, well, funnily, it's a big question. Funnily enough, I've only worked with a handful. Oh, really? Okay, literally. so it's not too much. Is, it, is there a great diversity in the people that you work with racially and ethnically, or is it... Racially, I... I end up working with a lot more white with oh, okay. white children mm. than I do working with with black or ethnic minority. Mm. I rarely work with anybody who's of ethnic minority. Oh, really? That's really opening. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, really, they the main the main thing is that they all come from just bad areas. Mm. So no matter where you come from, mm. I just want you to be a a better person. Mm. You mm. know, it doesn't. It doesn't change whether you're you're black or white or mm. any kind of exactly minority. exactly. Um, my thing for you is that I just want you to be great, um, and yeah. Mm. And 
In that last question, Shane, I referred to as your preferred identity, which of course is a black man and not someone who is B-A-M-E or BAME. Now, this is a BAME is a term that's sort of used quite widely in the national conversation. Some people agree with it, some people don't. Um, just tell me why you wanted to separate those two distinctions and not be described in the latter grouping. Uh, well, first, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's widely used because um, BAME itself is something that um, is an acronym that the government bodies came up with mm. to essentially just group ethnic minorities together. Mm. Um, which, you know, as a as a black person, I've spoken to many other black people, many mm. other people from so many different minorities, and I've never heard one person say that. Oh, really? They okay. would want to be referred to as being because, mm. you know, to... To group us together like that, um, as I as I mentioned to you, mm. um, you know, it it implies that we all face the exact same trouble, uh, mm. the exact same struggles. We all go through the exact same things, um, which which is not the case. Which is yeah. not the case. Mm. You know, as a black person, things that I go through um, are different to what you know someone of Asian descent may mm. go through, or someone who's a gypsy or Roman traveller may mm. go through. Mm. Um, you know, so I don't, I don't think it's fair to, to put them in one group. Mm. Um, so I get that. I I've get always, that. so, you know, I've always referred to myself as, you know, I'm a, I'm a black guy, like, mm. I'm, a, I'm a black British guy mm. and, and that's really it mm. to it. Mm. And just about your role as a, a male mentor now, are you conscious of, when you're working with these young people, of challenging traditional male stereotypes in how you guide them you know are you that you know men can be kind we can be gentle we can be compassionate whilst also being articulate or assertive in how you deal with them and and whatever else you need to establish that relationship between you and them yeah that's literally it what you mm. said you know with a, with me i've i've most i think 90 percent of the young people i've worked with have been male mm. and you know the kind of environments they come from um all they all they know is male stereotypes mm. you know? all they know is what society um has deemed to be acceptable mm. to be a man mm. um which you know for a lot of the time isn't really the case you know so i let them i let them know that you know it's it's okay to to you know show your emotions it's okay to talk about things um it's okay to to you know just show more emotion and be compassionate as you're mm. saying um and with the hope of them just uh you know being able to open up more and i feel mm. like when i i tend to to open up myself when i'm with young people and i'll, I'll tell them you know about my kind of background mm. and, and where i've been and you know that kind of makes things that kind of puts us on more of like an even playing field because mm. we can we can relate a lot more mm. um and obviously because of how i look as well you know like, I'm, like i have quite a lot of tattoos and stuff so mm. they always want to come and talk to me mm. about that and then from there you know we can, we can talk about all kinds mm. of stuff i often say on this pod shane that it must be so horrendous growing up as a young person now compared to what it was like when we were growing up you know We've got the, you've got the explosion in social media, smartphone technology, where kids are having greater access to technology all the time at a younger and younger age. 
what that comes with is the intense pressure and perfectionism culture. Um, you've also got the knife crime crisis we're seeing on our streets, bullying and sort of the mental health crisis as well when sort of young people are getting, are demanding more and more support because they need it and the provision isn't there often. Um, from your experience, particularly with social media, how have you seen these issues manifest themselves in the young people that you work with and, and how do you help them navigate that? Uh, actually, what I, what I thought of now was completely different <laughs> to what I said, to what I just said. I often say on this pod, Shane, that it must be so horrendous growing up as a young person now compared to what it was when we were growing up as kids. You've got the explosion in social media and smartphone technology where kids are having greater access to um, iPhones and all sorts of gadgets at a younger and younger age, You've what, which comes with that, the intense pressure and perfectionism culture. Um, you've also got the knife crime, crime crisis, that's a mouthful, we are seeing on our streets um, bullying and, and support for their mental health as well. From your experience, how have you seen these issues manifest themselves, especially social media, with the young people you've worked with, and how do you help them navigate that? Um, with social media especially, um, you know, especially when you talk about perfectionism culture, um, a lot of young people are, in, like, are engaged with social media. And one thing that a lot of people don't realise is that, especially with something like like Instagram or Snapchat, mm. um, the people that they're following and the posts that they're seeing are essentially just a highlight reel mm. of, of their lives. And people aren't realising that, you know, life isn't like that all mm. the time. Life isn't supposed to be like that all the time. So at a much younger age, people, young people would end up wanting to chase that kind of that kind of thing and you know have access to a lot more money than you know we would have needed when we were that kind of age and for some young people that results in them you know going into crime or going into means of trying to attain that money um in ways that aren't necessarily you know legal Mm. Um, which kind of which ends up having a negative impact on their lives. And mm. when I work with young people, I always try to explain the importance of, you know, actually working and earning money for yourself and mm. understanding the value of a pound. Because mm. what you what you get now, the proceeds that you may get from crime now, aren't going to sustain you for the rest of your life mm. sort of get that um, get rich quick sort of vibe exactly yeah. and you know the result of this can either you you're either going to end up in prison or you know you'll end up in a much worse situation when mm. it comes to harm you might lose your life mm. and you know I don't want that for any young person I work with so mm. I always encourage them to to better themselves mm. in the most you know, legal ways mm. possible. And and knife crime and gang culture is, I'm sure, something else you've you've come into contact with in working with young people. And we unfortunately sit, appear to be seeing more and more young people unafraid to carry knives now. Um, first of all, do you think this is accurate? And what do you think the possible reasons are behind this? Is it is it fear of being seen weak, seen seen as weak, or fear they might be attacked whilst they're out and about? Is it braggadocio? Is it pressure from others? social media or even perhaps a mental health angle that we haven't even discussed oh, yeah I feel like I feel like mass crime has been discussed so much mm. in the media that mm. you know I don't really have to have to explain why a young person wants to carry a knife you know a young person who's involved in that kind of life 
Um, you know, they may have seen a lot of horrendous things. I might have been through a lot of terrible experiences. And, mm. You know, I know, I know quite a people, quite a few people have lost, you know, friends, lost family members mm. to, to that kind of crime. And, you know, I I can, I can see why a young person would carry a knife. I'll never say that it's that it's the right thing to do. Um, but you can understand in, the reasons why because of the work you've done. I can understand yeah. the reasons why because, you know, if there's, if if you're involved in that kind of life and there's somebody, there's another group of people out there who want to do you harm, then, you know, that's, if that's how you feel safe, then that's, that's what a lot of young people end up turning to. Mm. Um, so with, with my type of work, um, I just, all I can do is just encourage them that, you know, like this isn't, this isn't the way to go because, you know, if you end up, if you end up in in a kind of situation, you're more likely to be to be stabbed yourself. Mm. Um, and you know, obviously, I don't I don't want that for anybody mm. I work with. So um, yeah. stop and search is also one method which has been used to tackle knife crime. And there are myriad opi- of opinions on whether it works or doesn't. What's your take on it? Uh, well, it doesn't work. I feel like a lot of people know that it doesn't it doesn't work because what you're doing in that in in that moment, what you're doing with a stop and search is just you're literally just you're literally just stopping and searching a young person. If they have a knife on them, you take it, but you're not going you're not explaining to that person why it's wrong to do so. You're not hearing from that young person what even led them to feel like they need to carry a knife in the first place. So by you just stopping someone and and just taking it off them, you're trying to address the problem right at the end of the cycle as opposed to working with young people from earlier on um, to to kind of understand their backgrounds and where they're coming from and mm. you know a lot of a lot of young people don't get that kind of encouragement to mm. to be more for mm. themselves um, and when we were when we were a lot younger ourselves you know, for us, there was a lot more to do. Like there was, mm. there were communities. We were quite lucky. We were in London. We, we had lucky. stuff we to do. London. Yeah, and in a lot of in a lot of areas, like we grew up having, we were the last kind of generation to grow up with like community centres. I don't know if you ever went to any, but you know, those were places that you could go as a young person and you know be around other young people and you know play games and do activities and mm. you know just you know keep yourself out of that kind of that kind of lifestyle. Mm. Um, but, you know, coming back to stopping and searching, like, I don't, I generally don't believe that it doesn't work mm. for anybody because if you, if you stop a young person, they have a knife them and they, and you take it, there's nothing stopping them from going home and just getting another one. Mm. Yeah. And just finally, Shane, you're obviously someone who takes immense pride in what, in your, what you're doing and, and you must see the impact of your work every day, which is, I guess, something that not a lot of people can say. If there are any other young people who might be listening to this podcast, who might be at risk or maybe can't grasp the opportunities in front of them, what, what advice or message would you give them? Um, that you can... That there's more, there's more to life than the area that you're in. Mm. 
or the environment that you're in. You mm. know, there's so much opportunity out there. If you're willing to, if you're willing to, to look, um, if you're willing to, you know, like just push yourself that little bit more to, you know, take yourself out of the comfort zone that you may be in. I know it's it can be quite a difficult thing for for a lot of young people you know mm. i'm not saying that it's easy to to you know focus more on your schoolwork and things like that mm. but if you can if the opportunity is there and you can see that the opportunity is there and you have access to it then you know give it a try give it a try because it'll work out way better for you in the long run Another topic I was really keen to speak to you about, Shane, and it's one that we've briefly talked about already, which is this idea of identity. Now, I only discovered this whilst doing the research for this pod that you're actually of mixed heritage, which is you are half Ghanaian and half Zimbabwean. First off, just talk to me about your experiences growing up as a as a mixed man of, of Afro descent and what sort of cultural differences were there between your mum's side and your dad's side, um, whether it's food, music, um, values, you know, tell me a bit about that. Um, growing, growing up, I feel like it all just gelled together. Mm. Um, a lot of African culture as a whole has quite similar values in regards to, um, in regards to, you know, how, how you are with your family, Mm. you know, know, being able to excel in school, Mm. um, and just in general, making the best of yourself and just Mm. being part of a community mm. and was education that something that both your parents instilled in you as being really important oh yeah definitely mm. definitely my whole um all of my all of my family are quite are quite well educated my growing up in Zimbabwe my grandfather was um was a head teacher mm. um so education's always been quite a big part of my life mm. um so even me doing uni and then doing my masters over that masters after that mm. it just felt like the thing to do mm. um and growing up do you think your mixed heritage allowed you to sort of make friends from different backgrounds as well did it did it give you exposure to different forms of culture whether it was you know music or food or other things that gave you a more rounded view of yourself and, and other people um no, I never. You know what? That's something that I never really thought about. I was okay. I was just a young person. Just, yeah, just living. So it's almost like subconscious, and you were just kind of going through it. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I just, I just went through it, and it's not something that I ever really thought about. Mm. You know, I just knew that I had a lot of friends who were from different backgrounds, mm. and and that was all there really was to it. Mm. And obviously. You said that um, a lot of African cultures are very similar ideals and values when it comes to sort of a few different things. But as well as this, you know, Ghana and Zimbabwe are two completely different African countries, their own unique yeah. set of values, um, identities, cultures, language, etc. Were there any examples that you can think of, and you can say no to this as well, yeah. growing up where you encountered perhaps stereotyping or discrimination because of the either of these? You know, do people ever think that you perhaps belong to just one or the other, or group them together in a negative way, whether that was by other black people or, or white people as well? Uh, stereo- stereotyping... If I'm, if I'm going to be stereotyped 
by by anybody. Um, it was never it was never by another black person. Mm. It's always by someone of of a different color to me, mm. and that person is not going to look at me and ask me, "Are you are you Ghanaian or are you Zimbabwean?" Before mm. they choose how they're going to discriminate against mm. me, they're just going to view me as a black person, and mm. and that's all. And that's how they view me. That's how they stereotype me. It won't mm. matter where I came from. I'm just mm. black to them. Mm. Um, how do you think you carry both these identities with you um, in your life? Obviously, Ghanaian and Zimbabwean. You know, do you do you? How often do you go back to the country and and ha- either to see family or to sort of keep engaged with your roots as well? Um, so, I've I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say I'm as in touch with my Ghanaian side because I is that your dad's side, side, side your dad's yeah. side yeah. Because um, that's the one place that I haven't been to. Okay. Um, I obviously I have I know quite a lot of my family on my Ghanaian side who are here, mm. um, and I've met my grandmother on that side when she when she came over. But I still haven't been there. Mm. Um, so I'd really love to go at some point. Um, growing up, a lot of a lot of the time spent with family was you know with more with my Zimbabwean kind of side. Mm. Um, so I feel a lot more in touch with with that environment because mm. you know especially especially spending my really early years there mm. um it kind of instilled a feeling of just home to me so whenever i go um i i feel a different kind of peace because i i get those same feelings that i had when i was like mm. like three mm. you know being over there and you know, just enjoying it so much, and obviously being with my grandparents, because my grand, because you know, here, a lot of people who are who are from here, you know, I'd imagine like yourself, like your like your grandparents and your extended family are all kind of in within the UK, but for me, my family are in are split over over so many different countries. Mm. Even even some of my aunts and other family members have moved to like. Australia and mm. like America and all sorts. Was so, that hard for you growing up to know that there were different countries and you couldn't always see them like when you wanted? Uh, no, because because okay. I never because like with my with uh, with my Ghanaian side because I never because I never been there because I never met mm. you know my cousins who lived out there. I never felt a sense of longing. I never mm. felt like I missed it because mm. I hadn't experienced it. Exactly, yeah. Um, Can't which, miss what you haven't experienced, exactly, I guess. Yeah. Um, but on the Zimbabwean side of things, after I came back, I I went more... I go more or less every every other year. Mm. I go, so I'm still very in touch with my family. There. I'm still... Like, I still have a lot of friends there. Mm. Um, and I don't really feel like I'm missing out. I might have felt it when I was younger, maybe when I when I wanted to see my grandparents and I couldn't. Mm. Um but now that, you know, I'm a lot older, I'm grateful for the for the fact that I can I can just work and, you know, buy a ticket and mm. go whenever whenever I feel like it. Mm. And just just regarding Ghana and sort of Africa more more widely, I've got a few Ghanaian friends who go back to visit the country and, and regularly. Um do you feel like there was, well, I mean, it's probably an obvious answer, but do you feel like there was ever a negative stereotype or image associated with the country or, or the continent? And if so, do you feel like it's changing? You know, 
I, I think that the export of sort of one thing factor for me is the export of Afrobeats and Afropop in, in educating people about mm. the, the vibrancy of the country and having that form of culture, which is now a worldwide phenomenon, yeah. I think is a massive thing. But what, what, what would you say on that? Uh, I would say with somewhere, especially like Ghana, where mm. all of a lot of my friends seem to be in Ghana at the moment because there's a lot going on right now. Mm. Um, I think a lot of people are starting to realise how beautiful and how amazing of a country mm. it is and, you know, how much there there is for you out there, how much you can do. Mm. Um, you know, growing up, I remember, you know, when you when you first sent me, like, the list, the list of... The questions, running order. The yeah. running order and all of that. You know, one of the questions was, you know, your parents... It was something about, you know, my parents had left the opposing countries, mm-hmm. you know, um, and it it assumed that they were leaving because of hardships and all that type mm-hmm, of stuff. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I looked at the political situation in the last 10 years and I was thinking, yeah. mm. but that was probably my subconscious bias, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah but my, my parents, they left 25 years ago. They left mm-hmm. 25, 26 years ago. Mm. And it was a different place, I guess, back then. Yeah, like Zimbabwe, like, I've, I've never lived in a bigger house than when I was in Zimbabwe. The Terrier Mansion. It was... <laughs> Yeah, it was, the manor. <laughs> it was it was pretty it was pretty big and we had a lot of land in Ghana as well. Mm. You know, you can build you can build your you can buy land and you can build yourself a massive house to your liking. Mm. Which is which is something that well you can do it here, but it's, <laughs> yeah, it's way, pretty it's pretty bloody hard. <laughs> like just buying a just buying a house. Just planning is, permission is it's, it's insane. It's insane, but yeah. to buy land is is mm. completely different over here. Um so my parents, so my parents growing up, they had, they had, you know, really good lives mm. where they were and they left for literally any other reason why a young person would want to. Okay. It was yeah. literally just to, just to explore see, the world. Just and, explore, yeah, yeah. You know, um, I remember my mom, my mom told me, you know, she just, she just came here cause she's the oldest mm. um, and she just came just to, just to see what it was like to be here. She mm. had a great time. Um, you know, one of my uncles, he played football. So, you know, he came here on like a, mm. a scholarship or something like that. And my family just ended up just mm. one by one, just coming over. And it was the same thing with my dad, you mm. know. Um, so now, um, now that a lot of people are like going back to, this, to these places, I feel like mm. they're kind of discovering. Or a lot of people who aren't already African... Um, are kind of realizing how amazing these mm. places are, and I would recommend anybody mm. to to go if you ever can, because mm. yeah, you'd have a great experience. Mm. And just touching on that, and it's probably, and that's this is why I feel like it's gonna be it's an eye opening poll because that's challenged some of my subconscious biases about the motivations that I thought perhaps were your parents mm. for for leaving the continent. And do you think that that this is an image now that's hopefully going to be broken down that, you know, people don't just leave the continent because of extreme hardship. It's actually just they want, you know, for any other reason that anyone would travel, basically. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll hope they do. You know, mm. people, people are going are gonna to think what they think. And, and I, I've, seen, I've seen so, so many times people um, tweeting, like, their, their, their massive houses um, in, Af- in Africa. Mm. And you know, catching it, you know, we don't we don't live in hearts or anything. Exactly, but, exactly. Um I at this kind of point I don't feel like 
right people should should have to try and fight that kind of stereotype like, mm. I'm not because it's do you feel like the like, people come to it on their own conclusion on their own time basically nah, I feel I feel like a lot of people know or recognise it but they just want to like turn a blind eye to it and it's easier to just feed into the stereotype and mm. just think oh this is this is what they're like this is mm. um, you know where they come from that's just how it is um, and it's easier to ignore that things can be different. It's easier to not change your mindset. Um, so you know, I don't really, I don't really bother myself with people like that. I know, I know how great it is over there. Mm. I'll let anybody know how great it is over there. And you know, um, if you don't, if you don't believe that, that's that's your own loss, really. Our final topic of conversation, Shane, and it's one that I have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So, firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? Uh, I'd say it's I'd say it's pretty decent. I can't complain. Mm. And if you felt comfortable saying, um, and you might not have any mental health long yeah. long term mental health issues that you live with, what mental health condition do you live with, and how do they affect you in your day to day life? Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say I have any any kind of mental issues that I that I know of, mm. mental health issues that I know mm. of. Which is fine, yeah. Well, I always say not everyone has a mental health condition, but everyone has mental health. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And, you know, one... Have you... There's there's this book that I read um, about depression. It's mm. by Matt Haig. Yeah, yeah. Is it called Reasons to Stay Alive? Yeah, yeah it's the big alive. one, mate. That was, <laughs> it's a big one in our community. Like, for, for me... Um, Especially when when depression especially became such a big topic in, mm. on social media, um, I I like a lot of other people like struggled to kind of understand what it was like. Um, Did that book help? Oh, so much! Mm. It helped so much because you know I'm I feel like I felt like I was on the outside looking in, mm. um, especially with a lot of the people that I worked with. Um, at first, it was difficult to understand mm. um, why, you know, a person can can just become depressed. But mm. you know, it is it is an illness, and it can literally affect anybody. Like mm. him, like he was um, in the book. You know, he was he was in a pretty good time in his life. Like they didn't see comparatively, it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. comparatively, yeah. like it. You know, when you looked at it, it didn't seem like there was any any reason for him to to become that kind of way. It's just one of those things that mm. that happens, and um, I mean, it challenges your own. I mean, for yeah, someone who's not educated about mental health, I think a lot of times people will see someone who has taken their life and go, "Why did he do that? Why did he or she do that?" You know, they're the perfect life. They're the great kids, and and they go, they do that whole process of well. What? How can someone ever be in that state when they've got so many comparatively good things around them? Yeah. But that book, I think, is really educational. I mean, I would recommend Notes on a Nervous Planet as well if you wanted to yeah. one to learn about anxiety, which is a really good one. Yeah, I'll definitely, mm. I'll definitely take a look into it. And you know, with with the whole suicide thing, there was there was one part that he he explained where it wasn't it wasn't necessarily that he wanted to actually you know kill himself. It was that he, want to live. Yeah, yeah. He, he just didn't want to exist. He just didn't mm. want to be there mm. anymore, um, and that kind of made me understand mm. things a lot better. 
Um, That's how a lot of people yeah. describe their own sort of suicidal thoughts and actions as well. It's that same mantra. Yeah. It's that I didn't feel like I wanted to die, but I didn't feel like I wanted to live. Exactly. And the want, not wanting to live outweighed it. You know, um, a lot of people who, um, if you've if you've seen like interviews with people who have made suicide attempts, for the most part, the moment they they jump off, you know, or try to to commit suicide, instantly they think, oh my goodness, like I should I shouldn't have done this like mm. um so it's not so yeah so i get i get what you're saying you know mm. and and what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health shane or, or help you feel better you know which ones have worked and and which ones that haven't in in regard it could be a hobby could be could be anything really uh, i feel i feel like my my family my family my friends like i'm, I'm very family oriented mm-hmm. so i've always been close to my parents and you know if i've if I've ever felt, you know, down about anything, I've always known that, you know, my parents are people that I can speak with. Mm. Um, you know, I have quite close friends around me as well that I mm. know I can talk to. I know, you know, you you are always open to talk about mental health. So, you know, I'm I'm really thankful that I have people in my life like that who mm. I can always speak to about these things because it, it's very encouraging. Mm. Um, and I don't know where... I would be where my mental health would be if I didn't have those kinds of people around mm. me. And and how do you support friends in your own social group, which which who may have mental health issues themselves? You know, how do you how do you be that good friend that that they need, or if they if they want, if you um if you need to check in with them, how do you do that? Um, it's just it's just using empathy, really. Mm. Um, always trying to understand where your where your friends are coming from and why they may be feeling this way Mm. um i've always been the type of person who will always be there to listen like i'm always going to listen to Mm. to what it is that you're dealing with and you know with with some with some people you know they don't some people don't even want a solution they literally they just want to have somebody to vent to and speak Mm. to about what they're dealing with because they they may not have that and by them speaking about their problem you know they'll be able to think clearer and and work towards a way that they can solve it so i'm always there i've, I've always been there to listen i've mm. always been there to encourage the people around me if that's what they need mm. toxic masculinity is something that we try and break down a lot on this pod chain and i also try and um promote the idea of positive masculinity as well yeah. um how do you think, first of all, that we break down this idea of toxic masculinity in society? So that's a big question, but well, how would you how would you yourself describe toxic toxic masculinity? So for me, is? toxic masculinity is a culture which stops men from talking about their mental health mm. because they feel like they will be bantered in inverted commas, mm. or they'll be abused for it, mm. or they will be made to feel smaller for doing it. I also feel that it takes the notion of what it means to be a man and promotes it in a very toxic way so it all toxic masculinity is saying that men can only feel two types of emotions you know anger or sexual braggadocio or you know violence um or it promotes things which mm, are stereotypical towards a man but are then used in a very harmful way so for example and me and you both love football, mm. but it could be that using football as a social hierarchical tool 
or mm. it's an exclusionary tool. Like, it's like in school. Yeah, yeah. So things like that is how I would describe toxic masculinity. Uh, I feel like, in regards to that, I feel like things are, are changing quite a lot. Mm. Because in what sense? Especially on, on social media, there's been a much bigger conversation being had about mental health and it's become... It's, it's, people have made it a lot easier to to come out and discuss your mental mm. health and a lot of people have been promoting mental health so um i feel like back in the day it was it was a lot more difficult to discuss it because mm. when we were when we were younger i i honestly have no memory of anybody outwardly saying that well that's were, it that's it that they were depressed or because always. if they did they probably felt that they were going to get bannered for it yeah or bullied yeah, for yeah. it that was the case in my school yeah, and um, but now I feel like things are getting much better and, and men are being encouraged more to speak about the things that they're going through, um, knowing that it's not going to fall on deaf ears. So mm. um, I just feel like we need more of that, really, mm. and you know, eventually we'll get to a better place, I hope. Mm. And what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds um, have, feel comfortable and safe in, in opening up about their mental health? Well, it's it just it just starts with with your friends and the immediate mm. circle around you. You know, if you're, um, I would I would say you know in like in like always just be encouraging to your friends. Always be able to listen. The thing is, though, you have to consider your own mental health in all of this, and mm. you know, not everybody is suited to be able to exactly take on yep. the issues that somebody else is dealing with. Um, but if you're in a place, if you're in a place to do so, and you're in a position to to help the people around you, then that's where it starts. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this edition of the Just Checking In podcast. Our final one, twenty nineteen. Couldn't have asked for a better man to yeah. do it with. So thank you, yeah. Shane. Yeah, thank you, Freddie, man. I really, really appreciate it. I had a great time chatting with you. So. Oh, so did I, man. So you did know, I. Hopefully some more of this in the future would be nice. Exactly, nice. exactly. Um, as always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in and all the vendors who've tuned in for 2019. Um, remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. Or if you're being very, very generous, please write us a review on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent. It's true.